So thank you, everybody coming for week three of the letter of Jude. As we start tonight, I want you to look on the top of page 22 is where we're going to be starting in your notes tonight. So over the past couple of weeks, we've covered quite a bit, even though we haven't been through many verses. But remember, this book, we talked about it at the beginning. It is a short book, but it is a sweeping book. It covers so much content. We can get a lot of doctrine from Jude. We can go everywhere pretty much in the Bible from this letter. And we're going to see that starting tonight. We're going to head all the way back to Genesis. So it is a short but sweeping letter. We have covered the book itself, um, where it is in the whole canon of Scripture and why that is important. We looked at Jude the person. Whenever you're studying anything in the Bible, start, uh, take a look at who the writer is. Learn about that person. Um, It will help you in understanding their writing. We talked about Jude's audience, knowing who exactly Jude is writing to. Because remember, though this is a letter about apostasy and apostates, it's not written to them. It's written to the church. It's written to believers. And we know that because they're identified as the called the beloved, and the kept. That's us. That's not describing an apostate. That is describing a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in your outline, and again, we've talked about Jude's outline and how interesting his organization is. Last week, we got our first glimpse of what apostasy is and who an apostate is through some descriptors there. And we saw one of the main things he tells us at the beginning is these are people who, what's the verb he used? How do they get into the church? Sneak, they creep in unaware. That's our first glimpse. And man, that one description tells us a lot. Tonight, we're going to go more into the body of the letter, and we're going to see over the next few verses, Jude is going to give us three examples of apostate groups from history. He's going to give us one dealing with the Jews, one dealing with the Gentiles, and one dealing with the angels. Not in that order will go Jews, angels, Gentiles, but still, Three very different groups, all apostatized. So tonight we're going to be looking at the first one of these examples. So that's kind of setting us up for where we are tonight. So before I have Alice to come read, Alice is going to read our letter tonight. Let me pray for us. And I hope you're taking this time to really be in not only the Word, but in Jude over and over and over. Again, as much as we're going to cover, and I know sometimes it feels like we go really slow and we cover a lot in a couple words, we're not even scratching the surface. 
in, in these classes, there's always so many more things we can go into and that we could learn from these books. So it's all of our responsibility to learn for ourselves. We are all to be studiers to show ourselves approved, workers who can rightly divide the word of God. Nobody can do that for you. I'm very thankful for good pastors and teachers and people that I trust and listen to, but they can't do the work for me. I have to study. You all have to study. And when we get into a letter like Jude, and we're going to start to see some of this tonight, you all, there's a lot of things in this letter and in the word in general where not everybody agrees on. We're going to be talking about how to handle things like that. But here's what I'm going to tell you. I am going to teach this class and this letter through the truth that I believe I am seeing in this letter. So it is your responsibility to take everything that I say and you go back and you match it up to the word and you see if what I'm saying is true. Does it line up with the word? And that's all of our responsibilities. And if we're all doing this, we're all going to be all right. Okay. So let me pray. And then Alice is going to read for us. Father God, we come to you in the precious name of Jesus. Lord, we thank you for this night. God, I thank you that even in the midst of rainy and cold weather, Lord, you've brought us together to learn more of you. That's why we're here. God, we want to know you more. We want to know your word. We want to understand your word. So, God, I just pray for that tonight. I pray that all week, um, this past week and for weeks forward, you are preparing our hearts to receive what you have for us. As we get into a new subject tonight, a new topic tonight, Lord, may we take a familiar story but gain something new from it. God, Jude is starting this section saying, remember, remember these things. Lord, as we call these things to our remembrance, I pray that you teach us something new. Lord, that you continue to move us on in our walk of sanctification. I thank you and I praise you for that. We give you the glory for tonight. Lord, may there be nothing that I say that does not honor you or give you glory. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. Okay, so Alice is going to come read for us. We already have a reader for next week. Um, If anybody wants to read after that, you can let me know. And then follow along in your notes or um, in your Bibles. What version will you be reading from? ESV. ESV. Okay, wonderful. I'm going to stand close to you so you're on the mic. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. 
For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walk in the way of Cain and abandon themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's era and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feast as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds sweep, swept along the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own chain, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of holy, his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have, um, they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loud mouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that lends to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Christ, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you.
you, thank you. I was so encouraged. Alice texted me today, and she said, I've been practicing. I love that. I love that. Um, okay, so we're going to take this little section over the next few weeks here, five through seven. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. So again, three examples. We're going to take each one of them individually. But let's start how Jude is really starting the body of his letter here. He says, I want to remind you, the King James Version says, I will therefore put you in remembrance. So here, Jude is bringing to the remembrance of his audience three historic events that they would actually be quite familiar with. The majority of the first converts to Christianity were Jews. So they knew these stories. They were fully aware and educated in these three historical events. Um, so he does not feel the need to replay or recount these stories in details. He doesn't give us many details here. Did you catch that? He, he's really just naming it. He, he's trusting that his audience knows these stories. So tonight, we're going to backtrack. We're going to go back into these stories so we can make sure we do fully know these stories. Um, he says next, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew, in the Greek, this to fully know something is horeo, and it means to perceive or to take heed of. So Jude could actually be warning of two different things here. He could be saying, you're forgetting these things that you knew, maybe forgetting these stories, not remembering them anymore. He could be saying, you know these stories, but... You're not, you're not um, taking heed of them. And there's a big difference there. Can we know something and not take heed of it? Oh, you all, there's a lot of things I know. That doesn't mean I am doing them all. <laughs> and he's saying, that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Don't let this happen to you. So later in the letter, we're going to see... He gives us three apostate groups in history, and then later he's going to give us three examples of apostate individuals. And don't, don't lose, even in that, Jude over and over in his organization. Every, almost everything is in groups of threes. It's fascinating the way he writes. So he's given us a warning here, and it's the same warning God tells us all throughout his word Remember, remember, remember. If we take the word remember 
or remind in all its various forms. It is over 250 times in the scripture. If we can combine that phrase with phrases like do not forget or forget not, which is used over 60 times, we can really start to get the the message here. Remember what I'm telling you. And I have a lot of verses here because I really wanted to show you this, that all the way through, and we're not going to go through every single one of them because there's so many, but I want you to see I pulled from Genesis to Revelation. Not every book, but I could have. When I went through it, this, this word is in every single book. Remember, remember, remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. Remember my name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the commandments of the Lord. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Remember the wondrous works he has done. Remember to extol his work. Remember his steadfast love and faithfulness. Remember your creator. Remember his holy covenant over and over. Remember what is written. Remember others in your prayers um, all the way. And then one we should all be familiar with from Revelation. Remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent and do the work she did at first. So all through the word, this call for us to remember. And then, of course, there's things we should never forget as well. The word is full of those. Do not forget the Lord your God. Don't forget his ways, his word, his covenant. Don't forget the afflicted, the poor, his precepts, his laws, his commandments. Don't forget what you look like in the mirror. When you turn around, over and over and over, things we are to remember, things we are not to forget. So important. Now, we all, and actually every culture on the planet, has what I'm going to call communal days of remembrance. I don't know what you actually call these things. But dates, events, that if they're thrown out to that culture... They don't need an explanation for them. There's going to be a common understanding. So if I said 1492, everybody kind of have a clue of what happened there? Yes, absolutely. And the reason everybody remembers these dates, because those dates are so important to that society historically that everything changed after that. And I would say for the world, really, everything changed after that. Um, If I threw out a historical figure, George Washington. Anybody need any explanation? Of course not. Of course not. These are, this is common knowledge for us in the society in which we live. 9-11. If I wrote you a letter and I mentioned 9-11, am I going to have to give you a rundown of what happened that day? Absolutely not. Whether you were alive or not at that point, you have an understanding of that because it set forth a precedent 
in our society that everything changed after that. Um, what if I threw out the date December 27th, 1996? You knew that? I was looking at Kim. I figured Kim would say something. <laughs> wow, Kelly. Um, <laughs> um, I want, with that one, I want you to realize we also have very important personal dates, very personal people in our own histories that were life-changing moments, life-changing people that the rest of the world may never hear of, may never know about, but they occupy very important memories in our own personal life. Now, the, the reason why I'm talking about this is because I really want you to understand what a precious important, valuable thing your memory is. You really are who you are because of what you're holding up here. What do you choose to think about? What do you choose to recall to your remembrance. And when you call certain events or certain people into your memory, how do you treat it? How do you think about those people? Please take some time this week and think about what do you choose to remember and what do you choose to forget? If someone got a computer readout of your memory, what would it say about you? And Jude here is saying, remember, remember. I, I hope if we got these computer readouts of everybody's memory, there would be a whole lot of this in there. And if there's not... Well, that would give us an area that we need to work on. Are we all agreed? Okay. So just think through this this week. Um, Jude is saying to remember these three stories from history. Call these things to your remembrance. And again, because he expects his audience to know these things, he's not giving them much detail. But he does say next, you once fully knew. So at some point, they once fully knew this story. Again, that would also imply they, um, what's the phrase I just used? They took heed of it. They took heed of the lessons that were learned here. So he's writing to an audience that knows these things already. Um, the modern day church has actually done what Jude has warned about. We have forgotten things that are in the word. We've neglected to teach certain things. And therefore, the principles that are 
laid out in these stories, we don't take heed of. We cannot allow that to happen. David Leggy, who I've quoted before, he's a pastor out of Scotland who is excellent. Um, he says that it could be said the biggest problems facing the church of Jesus Christ today is apathy, forgetting to remember. And we will find ourselves in danger if we forget to remember. So another point of application I want you to really think about this week before we move back into the text is why do you think there's such an effort right now to cancel culture? To revise history? Have you ever heard that term revisionist history? Do you know textbooks are being written now that teach History that did not actually happen? Um, Whoa, yes. Check into this. We can't be naive of what's happening in the world. Can anybody actually change history? Of course not. Of course they can't. So why? Why this effort? Because if you can change what somebody thinks about history, if you can change how they perceive the past, you can change how they think about things today. Tim gave an incredible example of this on Sunday. He didn't call it this, but this is what it is when he was talking about science. Was anybody there um, Sunday? Okay, So, so get this one, and this happens in all areas. Here, we know True history, the leaders of science were believers. The fields of science started because they wanted to understand their God's creation. They wanted to understand it and they wanted to extol his works. That's how science started. Are we taught that? Oh, my gosh, no, we have been taught now. It all came about with the the time of reason, and now look what most people believe today, that faith and science do not mix. You cannot be a person of faith and believe in real science. That has come about because we haven't been told correctly that it was believers in all the different areas, in all the different fields because of their faith in God, because they believed he was creator. That's how it all started. But because people don't know that now, their perception that they think today about faith and science is very, very off. So think through this this week as well. And ladies, there's examples of this everywhere. Um, I'm going to save that for another week. Um, I'm afraid I'll go down a rabbit trail. Okay, so we are to learn from history. Absolutely, you've heard that adage. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. That, That is truth. 
So we are giving three examples of apostasy for our learning from history. Israelites in the wilderness, which is verse 5. This is an example of Jewish apostasy. The angels who sinned, that's an interesting one. Verse 6, we'll talk about that one next week, dealing with angels who apostatized and Sodom and Gomorrah. This would be an example of Gentiles who apostatized. Jews covering all the bases here, covering it all, hitting everybody. So we're going to take each of these three examples individually, but two reminders as we get started. First of all, of course, ladies, if we want to remember something, we have to know it in the first place. We've got to get it in there. That should be our lifelong goal, learning more of this, getting it into our memory bank so we can recall it when we need it. Secondly, we cannot dismiss these three events as not pertaining to us today because they're Old Testament examples. Look where each of these come from. Numbers and two from Genesis. Can't go much further back than that. And yet, Paul in Romans 15.4 says, For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. So Paul, a New Testament believer, saying all of the Old Testament was written for our learning. Those are the scriptures Paul was referring to. That's what he had. That's what all the first century believers had. They had the Old Testament. They didn't even have the New Testament yet. 1 Corinthians 10. um, This is talking about Israel's exodus, the story we're going to be dealing tonight with. He says, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Do you believe we're at the end of the ages? Oh, yep, yep. And even if it's a ways away, we're closer than anybody has been before. So this was written for us. These examples are for us. So I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. So very interesting The ESV uses Jesus. Many translations use the word Lord, but we know it's the same. We, we know it's the same. The use of the name Jesus here is a prime example of what the apostolic teaching was, that though Jesus was not named by name in the Old Testament, he was ever present, he was ever working all throughout history, and this is an example. He, he was at work long before his incarnation. So Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt. So if we backtrack all the way back, ladies, all the way back to Genesis, and we're just going to do a quick little um, review here, survey. We know in, as Genesis comes to a close, Jacob, one, um, Jacob, who had by this time been named Israel, and all of his sons are in the land 
of Egypt. Remember that God had taken Joseph there before, and we learn later it was God's sovereign plan to get Joseph there so that when famine hit, he could actually bring his family to Egypt and provide for them to literally save the family of Jacob. So Jacob, all the sons, all their families come into Egypt. And Joseph at this point would be, of course, second in control in all of the land of Egypt. They live there for years. They prosper. Um, At the end of Genesis, in Genesis 50, it says that Joseph is about to die. He's 110 years old. He was able to see three generations of his own family in the land of Egypt. And before he dies, he says this to his family. God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land into the land which he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Was Egypt the promised land? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. They had been promised a land long ago, but they had not gotten that land yet. They're moved to Egypt. They're provided for, and they live there. Of course, we know later, after Joseph dies, a new Pharaoh comes who does not know Joseph, does not know the lineage of Jacob, and he enslaves the people. They end up living in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years most of which they were in the bonds of slavery. So, as the story goes on, you all, there are so many things we could learn from God saving his people out of Egypt. Here's just a few. His sovereignty in moving Joseph first. We can learn about Moses' salvation from Pharaoh's infanticide. Think about that. Um, Marking him for the job and task God had for him. We can look at God's miracles in Egypt through Moses. The Passover, you all, this is where we get the Passover. (laughs) That's everything. Um, We can learn about God's deliverance through the Red Sea, his guidance with the fire and the cloud, which is, of course, typological of the Holy Spirit. We can learn about his provision of manna, which is, of course, typological of the word itself. Oh my gosh, there are so many things we can learn from this story. But what Jude is using this story for is an example of apostasy. So though we can learn all those other things, and they're worth reading and reviewing and learning, tonight we're going to look at this story because of what it teaches us about apostasy. So they're saved out of Egypt in miraculous ways. We know all about the plagues. These people witnessed the 10 plagues. They witnessed God's deliverance. They witnessed the release um, from Pharaoh, the favor of the Egyptians. Do you all realize after the 10th plague, they were like, go, everybody go. Not only did they say go, God stirred the heart of the Egyptians to give them all their gold and silver. So after 400 years, they literally just walk out of Egypt free 
with mass amounts of wealth. Mass amounts of wealth. Now, not long after, of course, the Egyptians are, what did we do? Oh, my gosh, we need them serving us again. We just lost our workforce here. So Pharaoh sends 600 chariots after them to try to bring them back. And then, of course, we have the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. So, um, oh, and I forgot one detail before that. As the chariots are chasing them, think about what they've already witnessed. But they see the chariots, they turn on Moses, and they say these words. We told you in Egypt to leave us alone. It would have been better to die there. And that's really the first clue of what we're going to see in this story that continues to happen. So the people say this, and yet God parts the Red Sea, and they are allowed to walk through, and the Egyptians are destroyed. Now, God puts them on a journey to the promised land with Moses as their leader. And what should take 11 days. Oh, that's hard. 11 days to get from point A to point B, the promised land. They wander. I mean, look, look where they're going, you all, right there. And they wander for 40 years in the wilderness. 40 years. In Exodus 32, just a handful of chapters after God's delivered them through the Red Sea, they give all that gold to Aaron to make a golden calf, and then they bow to it. So, so, how can this happen? <laughs> and you all, this is a warning to us today as well. Um, everything that Israelites witnessed, think about all those things they witnessed, and some still did not believe. And we today have more than they ever did. We have more than they ever did. We have the full counsel of God. We have the Holy Spirit in us. My goodness. Um, so much more. We, we are more responsible for any generation that has gone before us because we have more truth than any generation before us. So lessons that we need to learn here. We need to fight for the truth. We need to contend for our faith um, because there's consequences to pay if we don't. And when we look at this story, and we're going to be very careful with this story to see what is happening to who, because even within this story, we're going to see there's actually two groups of people, two groups of people that we're going to be pointing out. Now, 
as we go through this and we're going to use Paul's summary of this event in 1 Corinthians to dig into it and see what really happened here. But as we read this, if we think about the typology of this story, we we can learn a little bit more of how it affects us today. How is it applicable to us today? So Egypt in the word is really typological of the world. Just like God saved the people out of Israel, what does he save us from? The world. He takes us out of the world. We're in the world still, but we're not of the world anymore. Pharaoh is typological of Satan. Moses, of course, though he messed up. And let me tell you, all typology breaks down at some point. Every bit of typology will eventually break down because we know Jesus never sinned and Moses, of course, did. But we do know that Moses is a type of Christ leading them through the wilderness, um, providing for them during this time of wandering. We have the Red Sea, emblematic of baptism, the pillar and the cloud, the fire, all these things that were leading the people through their journey. That is the Holy Spirit for us. We have manna, which is the bread of life, the word, And then we have water from a smitten rock. Oh, my gosh. Which is, of course, the living water, um, Christ. So Paul, writing to the church of Corinth, summarizes this entire event. And he uses this historic example to teach early believers. Because remember, Paul was writing. He was ministering in the first century using Old Testament stories to instruct new believers. And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So who was this example written for? Mm -hmm. For our instruction. So let's dig in a little bit and see what's going on here. So verses 1 through 5, we're going to hit these verses of Paul's summary, and then we're going to get some um, points of application from each. So in verses 1 through 5, it says, All were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. All ate the same food, drank the same drink. Um, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. So application. They all witnessed the same things. They all went through the same events together. They saw the same miracles. They had the same provision. We're going to see some of them, some of them did believe. I think, I think that's a point that oftentimes gets missed in this story. It's not all of them. Most of them. Most of them. We are privy to a lot of truth. We get a lot of truth. We get a lot of truth here. Um, If you go to New Life, and I know not all of you do, but if you do, we get to hear the truth. Um, Are we taking full advantage of the truth that we are witnessing and hearing? Some of these people did, and some of them didn't, and it led to destruction. Verse 6, that we might not desire evil as they did. They had just been taken out of Egypt where they were slaves. They weren't out for I don't even know how much time, maybe a few days. And they were longing for Egypt. Longing for Egypt. We as believers, though we are taken out of the world, given a new citizenship, can we still long for the things of the world? Absolutely. Absolutely. So think about that. What do we do for, what do we do about that? What do we do when we are desiring things of this world more than the things of him? Verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, because they were not satisfied with a God they could not See, they asked Aaron to make them an idol. And then they worshiped a God they could see. Now, I don't think any of us in this room are probably in any danger of bowing to a golden calf. But do we bow to other things? 
Do we allow ourselves to put trust in other things because we can see them and a God who we can't see and sometimes admittedly might feel far off. So we, we look to other things instead of him. An idol can be anything that takes precedence over God in our life. Anything. Anything that, anything in your life, here's, here's a good question. If there's anything that it, it ever goes through your mind, okay, if, if that's okay, I'm okay. If I know I have enough money in the bank to cover this, this, that, okay, I'm okay. As long as my relationship with so-and-so is good, As long as this, okay, okay, I'm all right. That's putting our trust in things that are not worthy of our trust. That is looking to something that is not, that is not worth looking at. That that is an idol. And we have to see the subtlety of idols today. They are not so blatant as they were but they are every bit as dangerous and deadly as they were back then. I would say even more so because they are so subtle. They are so subtle. Um, So this week, think through that. Pray through that. Is there anything in your life that maybe you're giving too um, too much precedence to over just believing God? This was an interesting one that has never stuck out to me before. I've taught Jude several times, never even, never even caught this verse. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That word play there is pezo. It means to play like a child, to sport, to jest, give way to hilarity especially by joking, singing, and dancing. They weren't taking things seriously. They weren't taking things seriously. Now, obviously, we know God is the creator of enjoyment. God is the creator of joy and laughter And oh my gosh, I hope all of our lives are full of those things. Yet at the same time, there are things we should never joke about. Sin is one. Too often we can joke about sin. Too often we cannot take it seriously in our own life or when we see it in a brother and sister. Sin is serious. It should never be joked about. It should never be taken lightly. At the same time, in this society, people were bowing to a golden calf. Other people are witnessing this and laughing and going on like nothing's happening. We've got to take things seriously. Some things should never be joked about um, or never excused. In verse 8, 
we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. This is the word sexual immorality. We've gone through this word probably in every class. It pops up everywhere. (laughs) This word is pornea. It is, of course, where we get our word pornography, but it is a very inclusive word. It includes every general (laughs) term that encompasses any sexual um, sin or illicit activity. Anything that you can think of in terms of a sexual sin could be under that umbrella of pornea. It is not just pornography. Now, again, um, knowing most of you, making assumptions about the rest of you, I would say probably nobody in here is indulging in illicit intercourse. Yet, that's not the only thing that this is talking about. One thing I would ask all of you, how do you allow yourself to be entertained? We have an entertainment industry that is absolutely built on pornea, illicit sexual activity. Affairs are celebrated. Pornography is joked about. Fornication is totally accepted. Homosexuality is put forth as normal. And I'm going to tell you this because this was a big one for me years ago when God is like, what do you allow yourself to be entertained by? And if you know me, you know this story. It was my husband who's like, why do you let yourself watch television shows where people have affairs? And I'm like, why do I do that? Why do I do that? That's nothing to celebrate. Sometimes you're rooting for it. Oh, you all, this is subtle, tricky things. And we know from Jesus' <laughs> Sermon on the Mount, <laughs> oh, he, he just turned up the expectations for the believer. He's like, I know, you know, you say you can't have, um, you know, can't have sex outside of marriage, whatever. Do, do you lust for somebody in your mind? And I kind of think of the same thing through this. I might not be doing these things, but am I allowing them to come in? Oh, you all, we just talked about what precious things our minds and our memories are. What are we filling it with? What are we filling it with? Um, We cannot engage in this like some of them did. Kind of hate that that one's on tape, but that is on tape. Um, Next. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. So simply put, tempting the Lord means putting him to a test by presuming on his mercy. And this is another thing that can happen in our lives very subtly. Let's say um, we know the word says this. We know the word says I can't do this particular thing. Well, 
it's not going to affect me. You know, that might be true for them. It's not going to, you know, I'm going to be all right. Or God says, God gives us a warning, um, gives us a warning. Oh, we're okay. We're, we wouldn't fall for that. We're going to be all right. Um, maybe we're in a sin. Well, haven't had any consequences for it yet. You know, maybe I won't have consequences for it. Um, that is presuming on the mercy of the Lord. And that is putting him to the test. Because at any time, at any time, judgment could fall. We cannot presume on his mercy. We cannot put the Lord to the test. We are to be, oh, ladies, we are to be so thankful for that mercy and so thankful for that grace. But that is very different than living in a way that says, my sin is covered. I'm a person of grace. I don't have to worry about that. I'm free. I'm free from the law. I'm free from this. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be legalistic. Um, and then we presume on that beautiful mercy that he gives us, which is what some of them did. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. They grumbled, they murmured, and they complained. They had been miraculously saved. They had witnessed numerous miracles. They'd been given a competent, godly leader who they complained about. They had been supernaturally provided for, and yet constant grumbling, murmuring, and complaining. So ask yourself, do you do any of those three things? Yes. (laughs) Yes, we do. We all do. That's one of the things we need to be working out. And, you all, I do believe this is one of the areas we might not take seriously enough that we just talked about. Do do you all realize in the church there's some acceptable sins and there's some unacceptable sins? Well, people can complain a lot. I mean, look, look what God is saying about that. Look what God says about murmuring complaining, um, sins that we can gloss over and not take seriously. And I think this story is, look at these things. It happened to them, and they faced destruction, and this was written so we can learn from it and not face the same destruction. Now, this is a very important note here, and I would say not only very important note, but literally um, kind of one of the keys to this whole summary here. I want you to see something, and you probably heard it even in my voice when I read it. In each of these examples, Paul makes it very clear this was some of them. Jude states that Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. What can we imply there? There were some that did. There were some that did. Um, So this was not all of them. I believe very strongly it was 
most of them because we know only two of them came into the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses, not even Moses himself after all that time, he sinned and he was not allowed to go in. Aaron, the high priest, not allowed to go in. Um, No one over the age of 20 was allowed to go in. That's some destruction. That is some destruction. Um, They all had access to the truth. They all witnessed the truth. Yet some believed and some did not. And their unbelief led to destruction. And here's what I'm going to say. For some of them, that destruction was for eternity. For some of them, it was destruction on the earth. And and think about this. Even the ones that survived, let's say even the ones that were younger than 20 that actually made it into the promised land. Did they face some destruction? Yeah, they witnessed their parents. They witnessed their grandparents. This is, this is serious um, things here. Just because they weren't destroyed forever, which is, of course, um, one of the main ideas of this letter with apostasy. Even one's who did believe faced destruction because of the behavior and choices of others. And Jude's going to pull this out a little bit at the end of his letter as well when he gives us our call of what are we supposed to be doing about all this stuff anyway? Um, And he's like, you don't let your garments get burned by those who are around you. But In this story, he makes it clear, and I believe Jude writes from the perspective that an apostate is not, has never been a believer. Someone who might look like it, someone who is associated with it, someone who might even profess it for a while. Can you profess something and it not be true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, This is one of those areas, I'm going to tell you, not all people interpret this this way. Some people believe believers can apostatize. I do not. I do not believe it. I don't believe that's what Jude teaches. I do not believe that's what the word teaches. Apostates are unbelievers. In Jude's case, they are unbelievers who have not only rejected the truth, but they come into the church and stay in the church, though they've rejected truth. For all kinds of reasons that we'll get to in a couple weeks here. They stay for a lot of reasons. But they're not believers. They are in the visible church, but they are not a part of the true church. 
And even we talk about in here, we have, again, the visible church and the true church. I believe this is an example here. They were all Israelites. Uh, All of these people, this whole group was Israelites. Some believed and some didn't. They, They weren't all saved just because they were Israelites, just like us today. We, we have to come into the knowledge ourselves. We need to bow ourselves. It was the same for them. It might look different then, but it was still the same. It was an individual decision. And those that apostatized turned their back, witnessed the same exact things and said, don't believe it don't want it, and they rebelled against it, those are the apostates. But there are some that did not apostatize, and those would be the true believers. Do we believe Moses was a true believer? Of course. Did he get into the promised land on this earth? You all, even as believers... Can we face destruction in our lives if we don't know the truth and if we don't continue to learn truth? Yeah, Hosea says, my people die for lack of knowledge. Can you have um, horrible destruction in your financial life if you don't understand how finances work, if you don't choose to learn Of course. Can you have horrible things in relationships if you don't just understand and learn about people and take the time there? Of course, he's saying, don't die for lack of knowledge. Don't be destroyed for lack of knowledge like so many are. So though as believers, we will not ever, thank God, face eternal destruction. We can face some destruction here if we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, if we're not learning and obeying and walking out our paths of sanctification. So, in this last, um, again, Paul is telling us that these things were written as examples for our learning And he ends this whole section on Israel's history with this warning. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. One of the most dangerous things, ladies, we can ever do is to think we just have it all together. Okay, We don't, you know, oh, I'm so busy today. I don't have to pray today. Oh, I don't have to read today. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I read yesterday. You know, just we can't think we've got it all together. We've got to be people who remain diligent and who remain teachable. The only way you're never going to learn anything new is to think you already know everything. And if we all remain teachable, we put ourselves in a place of protection, absolute protection from destruction. So next week, we're going to take at least one more example, possibly both examples. I don't know yet on time. But now what we're going to do 
is actually backtrack a little bit and go to what we didn't finish last week because I think this is so important for us to understand because this letter, again, this entire topic of apostasy and what an apostate is and what an apostate isn't can be very, very confusing. And if you don't get it clear, you can even get into fear. Can I do this? Could I ever apostatize? Could that be me? Again, I don't believe so. If you are say, if you are beloved by God, if you are called, and if you are kept by Jesus, I do not believe you can apostatize. Now, sometimes in order to understand and see clearly what something is, it's actually easier to think about what is it not, and that helps us to get it. So I want to tell you tonight three things that apostasy is not. Apostasy is not ignorance of the truth. This is 18. I'm going back. Oh, you don't have that because you don't have a binder. Um, Oh, you do? Okay, so it's from last week. So page 18. Page 18. So apostasy is not ignorance of the truth. A person isn't apostatizing because they don't know something. It is when they do know something and they either refuse to believe it, reject it, or rebel from it. Apostasy is not error in handling the truth. Can we all make mistakes? We're going to be digging into each of these. Um, And finally, an apostate is not a believer who sins. It's not. It's something different. So let's look at each one of these to really get some understanding. So this word apostasy is Greek, apostasia. It means a falling away, a defection, a rebellion against truth. It means to forsake the truth. Because a time, I'm not going to read all these, but read these this week and see every time the word is used. Um, What's tricky here is the word apostasy is not used in the English Bible. You have to dig into the Greek. But in English, it is used for to fall away. It's used to forsake, to rebel, to depart from, or to turn away. It's actually, this word is also found in the Old Testament. Of course, you're not going to find this word in Hebrew either. But when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, that's what Paul would have been using, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. That word apostasy is used there as well. In Hosea, where it says, do not rebel, it's do not apostatize. (laughs) That's what that word is. There's several places, even in the Old Testament, 
where we see this word being used. So it is a concept all throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, meaning a person who has been given access to the truth and they deny it. They deny it. Um, I'm not for sure. I'd have to dig into that a little bit. Let me tell you next week. Okay. Um, so look through these words, get the context of what this word is saying, what this idea is. Now, first, we know that apostasy is different from ignorance of the truth. And if we look... This is fascinating. Have you all ever looked at where Jesus' ministry took place? In this little red triangle, pretty much. I think I read it's about 12 miles or so. Now, you know, he went to Samaria and a couple different places, but the majority of it was in a very small geographic place. Think about that. If we took this map and put it on this globe, it would not even be a pinprick. Not even a pinprick. Look how big this world is. At the time of Jude's writing, most people would have been ignorant of the truth. They would have had no exposure to what happened. Very few people on the planet would have witnessed this man Jesus, his death, his resurrection, um, his teachings. We know people have been all over the world since when? Oh, go back further. The Tower of Babel. When Babel fell, we know God spread people out all over the world. So though our Bible literally focuses, no joke you all, on this teeny, tiny little place. It is because he chose Israel. It's because he chose them to be his people. That doesn't mean there wasn't people all over. Now, the majority of people during his, right, I know, is this kind of mind-blowing? Like, the majority of people at his writing would have been ignorant of the truth. That doesn't mean they were apostatizing. It means they didn't know. Now, we're not going to get into this, but don't worry about all these people because we know from Romans, creation leaves no one without an excuse. So they all had creation to look at. And we know if they did and they called out and said, there's something greater here than me, God would always answer. God always answers when someone calls, okay? And then 
We'll let God deal with how he dealt with them. But for right now in this, we know very few people had access to the truth of Jesus and to the truth of the gospel. Now that changed quickly and it changed miraculously. This is amazing if you dig into Acts. One of the first things that happened was the day of Pentecost. And if we are looking at early Acts, you got to think about what is happening here. The Jewish celebration of Pentecost is Shavuot, and it is also the Feast of Weeks and the celebration of first fruits. It's the celebration of their harvest. It's 50 days after Passover. So their important celebration of Passover, 50 days later, they have their day of Pentecost. It is one of three celebrations all Jews were expected to come to Jerusalem for. So Jerusalem was packed with Jews from everywhere. This is why we read in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. 2.5, there were dwelling in Jerusalem, listen to this, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. In 2.9, it names 15 nations. 15 nations right there. All in Jerusalem, all on this day, we know what happens. The Holy Spirit falls and the apostles start speaking in other tongues. That word tongues there is glossa and it means a language or dialect spoken by a certain group of people. This was not a language people weren't understanding. This was apostles who did not know these languages speaking the language of these people so they could hear the gospel in their own language. Because they even said, who are these people, these Galileans? They're not even educated. And they're speaking in my language? But look what happened. After that, all these people go home, taking what they heard in their own language. So evangelism, all of a sudden, isn't this one little spot. It has spread quickly and miraculously. Now, for the Jews, the day of Pentecost was the celebration of the wheat harvest. For believers, the day of Pentecost is soul harvest. It's the church. And we know the church is the means by which God uses to evangelize. So we have the day of Pentecost. Then, and I gave you all a map here and you can put it in your pockets of your binders, but this explains how Paul, even when he went on his missionary journeys, when he goes to some places, there's already churches there, already churches in some of these places. So Paul goes, he has this dual ministry of evangelism and discipleship. He is speaking to believers and he is evangelizing. Ladies, it's our same call. 
that whatever else, whatever your vocation, we all have the same call to evangelize ones that do not know him and to disciple those who do. Just like Paul, that's what we should all be doing. Um, I gave you a map because this is a really fruitful connection here. If you choose to read in Acts about Paul's journey, use your map and just follow along where he goes. If ever or whenever he goes to a city where there's a letter that he writes, like let's say you're following your map and he gets to Thessalonica, well, read the letters to the Thessalonians. When Colossae is mentioned, read the letter to the Colossians. Oh, you will get a new take on things if you read that way. There's more than one way we can read the Bible. We know we need to be reading it all the way through, but we, we can gain a lot by doing some different activities in our reading. So that one's going to take you a while, but sometimes just take some time and do that. Follow the map. Go to the different places. Does anybody know the one place that Paul went that not only does he write a letter to, but Jesus himself wrote a letter to that's in the seven letters? Ephesus. Ephesus. So when he goes to Ephesus, then read the book of Ephesians and then read the letter in Revelation to Ephesus. Man, you read those back to back and you will glean a lot. So anyway, we have this mass evangelism all a sudden spreading over the world. 2,000 years later, would you say the majority of this planet now is still ignorant of the truth? Or they now have access to the truth? Absolutely. Absolutely. The majority of our planet today has had exposure to the truth, has been given the truth, or could find it if they looked at all for it. So with that, the danger of apostasy actually grows because people can't claim ignorance of it. They simply hear it and reject it or choose not to follow it or whatever. So as truth spreads and goes forth, so does the danger of apostasy. That's why we know that at the end... We're warned about this. At the end times, apostasy will be greater. And before Jesus comes, we talked about this week number one, there will be a great falling away from the truth. So apostasy is not ignorance of the truth. And again, I would say most people today could not claim that as an excuse. Secondly, and I've got some verses in there for you to dig into. Secondly, apostasy is not error in handling truth. Y'all, even the most devout people who love the Lord and love his word will make mistakes with it. 
will say things incorrectly, will see things differently. That's a tricky one right there. That's a tricky one right there. Does that mean they're apostatizing? And I'm just going to give you an example, um, one that we should all be able to relate to because of the class we just did. Revelation. You all know I am a full 100% believer that the millennial reign of Christ is a literal reign of Jesus Christ on this earth for 1,000 years from Jerusalem. Does every Christian believe that? I look at the word and I'm like, how can anybody see it any differently? And I'm sure some people look at me and say, what is she thinking? You know, this is, this is hard stuff because there's only one truth. <laughs> one day, one of us will be proved wrong. <laughs> we can't have a millennial reign and not have a millennial reign. They both can't happen. Somebody will be proved right. Somebody will be proved wrong. Does that mean if I have taught that class from that perspective and it turns out to not be true, am I an apostate? How do you know? This is where Jude really helps us out with this, you all. He says much less about the doctrine of apostasy and much more about the lifestyle of apostates. So he tells us, look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. I can look at some of these teachers that I listen to that I feel like I agree with on almost everything. And then there's this one glaring area, and I'm like, what is wrong? How do they not see this? But if I look at their lifestyle, if I look at their fruit, and I'm like, these are people who serve the Lord, who have lived faithfully for decades with their wives, good family people, they sacrifice, they serve. I know they read the word. I know they pray. I know that that's the fruit of a life that you look at. There are going to be things we don't all see eye to eye. And there's even going to be some of those things where we, we really have a difficult time seeing the other way. And when we face one of these things, we have to do what Jude is telling us to do and say, look at the life, look at the fruit. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Every teacher is going to make mistakes. Every preacher is going to make a mistake. That, that is just, that's part of this road. Um, this is why James says, don't, don't long to be a teacher. You will face a greater judgment. And you all, when I think about things like what I just told you, I'm like, oh, Lord, let me have that right. And if I don't, show me so I can tell everybody I taught the other way. <laughs> I mean, I, this is very serious. But making a mistake is not apostatizing. Okay. And thirdly, we need to know an apostate. I'm going to have to go through this one very quickly. An apostate 
is not a believer who sins. Do believers sin? Of course. We are not free from sin until we are in a glorified state. Now, we know, and I'm not going to take a lot of time here because we've gone over it in every single class, but we know once we are saved and justified, we're no longer, um, we are no longer bound to be judged for our sin. We're not under the penalty of sin anymore. That's been paid for. That moment of justification, we are not judged by our sin anymore. Thank God, what a wonderful thing. If he never did another thing for you, that is enough to worship him. We are not free for, we are free from the penalty of our sin. But all that does is put us on the path here of sanctification. And during our walk of sanctification, we can still sin. We're not in the darkness anymore. We're children of the light, but we can still do a deed of darkness every now and then. Doesn't mean we're a person of darkness. It just means we've sinned. And that's the path. We repent. We go on. And as we walk out this path of sanctification with fear and trembling, sin should lose its power over us. It shouldn't be as strong of a hold on us anymore. But we will never be truly free from that until we are in a glorified state. So an apostate is not a person who sins, a believer who sins, not even a believer that's in a serious sin or what we might call a besetting sin. That might be something where they need church discipline. They need to be called and they need to be confronted on something to come back. But it's not, it's, it's not a believer who sins. Jude is telling us, and we will see this all throughout the letter. He is saying the people he is talking about in this letter is not a believer. Did you notice even probably every time we read this letter and when um, Alice read it today, ungodly people who do ungodly things in an ungodly way, ungodly, 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 ungodly. What's he telling us? These are ungodly people. Can't have God and literally be ungodly without him at the same time. Again, doesn't mean you can't sin or do an ungodly thing, but that does not make you ungodly. Those two things are incompatible. So an apostate is not a believer who sins. It is a person who is not a believer, but they are claiming to be so. Claiming to be so. And that is very dangerous ground. So I am going to, because time's up, I'm going to pray. I'm going to turn off the tape. And then if you have questions, I'm happy to answer them. Father God, we come to you again, Lord, at the end of class, and we say thank you. Lord, help us to understand tough, difficult things. 
Lord, we ask the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does best, which is give us understanding of your word. Lord, it is your desire that we understand your word, that we know your will. God, help us to all remain teachable. Help us to all walk out our paths of sanctification with fear and trembling. And Lord, as we do this, we do ask that the power of sin continue to be broken over us. God, I pray that we be women, that as we walk this road, Lord, things that used to catch us up and um, cause us hardship, Lord, that they not anymore as sin loses its grip on us. And God, we thank you for the day where you save us, Lord, through glorification, that we will actually receive a glorified body no longer impervious to sin. Lord, we look for that day. We thank you for that day that is coming. And until then, Lord, we ask for your help and your guidance so that we may live lives that glorify you and represent you well to a world that needs you. All this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.